And support for this podcast and the following message comes from MGM Studios and United Artists Releasing's Licorice Pizza, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It was named Best Film of 2021 by the National Board of Review and nominated for eight Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture. It's now playing everywhere, and I'd add that in some theaters it's still being projected in 35 and 70 millimeter films, so definitely check your local listings for that. And it's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. Welcome to the Filmmaker's Toolkit. I'm Sarah Shackett, Associate Craft Editor over at IndieWire. Uh, I have partnered up this week with the lovely Chris O'Fault because there was a moment at the end of last year when we both kind of turned to each other and were like, you know what? I really love Come On, Come On. No, I really love Come On, Come On. We realized it was a favorite film for both of us and, and surprisingly personal to both of us for different reasons. It is a beautiful example of how a film can feel simple and truthful, but that doesn't make it easy. There is a richness and a complexity to Come On, Come On, and the way that it forces you to pay attention in a different way to aspects of the cinematic apparatus, the filmmaker's toolkit uh, that we all normally take for granted. And so once we realized that we both love this movie, we schemed and plotted our way into talking to its writer and director, Mike Mills. I really love the conversation that y'all are about to hear. Mike is so thoughtful and so willing to share a lot of the philosophy behind his process and the inspirations and interesting collaborations that arose out of making Come On, Come On. If you are looking to make interesting stories that don't fit the normal five-act structure, then you need to hear Mike talk about filmmaking. And even if you're just interested in what makes a story quote-unquote naturalistic, you are going to enjoy listening to him just as much. So, here is our conversation with Mike Mills. Yeah, Mike, I... uh... I have a nine-year-old son, and uh, so much of what you captured here rings rings true. And uh, so I can totally understand the motivation for you know wanting to make this film. It's interesting though because there is on the other side of it, there have been so many of these movies, right? You know, middle-aged man who comes to see things differently because of a relationship with a child, mm-hmm. and, and and it does get tired, and it does get trouble. And you avoided that, and I mean, we want to talk about how you avoided that, but I wonder if that's in the back of your mind to a certain degree. Is you know, you obviously you're a filmmaker that has to bring things out into the world. That idea of of how this type of film is normally perceived and mm-hmm. kind of I don't know if it's a, if we want to call it a trope or something but I'm wondering if that's somewhat in the back of your mind of like the way that this type of story is usually told which you obviously didn't do yeah um I think I think just about every film you start on has the horrible version of it you know like right right adjacent to it or if you watch the wrong movie right before you start to write or whatever you're like oh no this can never be anything but a bad trope but being so in the story or like living it so much with my kid, I really had all that life-iness or that, that non-cliche, non-hackneyed, complex, layered lifiness in front of me at all times. So that really keeps me going or feeling like, okay, that's the thing I'm chasing. Joaquin was really afraid of what you just described um, and brought that up all the time. And then I appreciated that a lot. And that, that was one of the ways he was a great comrade. He always had his eyes on that. Like, how do we avoid that? cliche that dead end 
you can imagine you can you can imagine him being pitched that all the time, right? I could see everybody that that script landing on Joaquin's agent's desk all the time. Joaquin's a able, you know, a lost middle aged man. Right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> here comes like, the kid with all the wisdom. I wonder if anyone does send that one to Joaquin because I think everyone everyone also misunderstands him as being like too dark and too weird yeah. for that, yeah. you know, yeah. um, which is a misunderstanding, I think. Um, but then I also had um, Vim Vendor's Alice in the Cities in my head. And, and mm. as a as a like a North Pole or whatever as a, as a landmark, and that movie is so good at like not playing in any expectations. I feel like, and in, and in a really gentle way, it's not like roughhousing you past your expectations. It's just sort of like gently providing another path. I feel like the, their mm-hmm. relationship and what happens to the two characters and just the the kind of typical plot transformation things. Plot character transformations are so gossamer or like light in that movie but i found really emotional because of that because it's not overdoing it it's not like over creating change so that that was a real nice model there's a there's a great line that one of the kids says in the beginning one of the kids in the interview about you know wishing adults could be more aware of the world right around them and and you know once again just using a personal experience that is one of the magic things about having kids right is is that you suddenly all these ordinary things that go on in your life have uh, you see them in a different light you they have these are moments that resonate and i think sarah and i were talking about the thing that i love so much about this film is it does almost feel like a post-meditative state where you are incredibly aware of your surroundings and taking that in it feels like that drove some of your cinema here of like wanting that I imagine you have had that experience with your son and and how which is one thing to feel and experience another thing but to how to capture that in a in a movie so that you know Sarah and I and other people in the audience could could share that feeling of what it's like to be so aware of one surrounding when you are Mm -hmm. here with a kid that's interesting um and my kid my kid is a they them person they're um, non-binary person so Mm -hmm. some so I always just try to no 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 good Please. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, I, that thing you're talking about, I, I love that in two different ways. One is, yes, um, so often with a kid, you're kind of stuck under them and they're asleep, right? Or you're stuck in a situation that's on their terms. They need to eat. They need to talk to you. They need attention. They need something that derails you from your normal adult life in a way that's actually quite a gift. It's like really quite beautiful and makes you more present or more aware of these things that our normal adult lives who's kind of tuned out or whatever desensitized ourselves to and hopper my kid really does that to me and 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 i find that like quite profound and quite helpful to my life and somehow that overlaps with the cinema thing which i love is like yeah you're shooting a lot of interiors you're shooting people in bed together you're shooting like close-ups but that's happening in a city in a time and place and in a moment in history right so i always want to like have the wall become see-through and see the city and all the people that are walking around this very intimate conversation, you know? And that's what we kind of did, Robbie Ryan and I, with all those exterior shots and all those like kind of city shots. It's like, yeah, they're in the tub right now. And just outside New York City is just flying by, like all the life that's happening there. Um, And I love kind of transposing really personal, intimate, deeply intimate things with like the biggest things or like the most anonymous, social, large, historical things. No, that makes a ton of sense. And I love what you said about sort of having the city and having the context lean over these intimate moments. And it feels like each city that we go to is very particularly chosen. And as a native New Orleanian, I am very curious (laughs) about sort of what (laughs) called to you about these places. 
So I know New York and LA very well. I've lived in both of them for a long time and, and I love both those cities a lot. Right. And so, and I like just being that kind of bi-coastal stretch and New York has this because they are interviewing kids about the future. And we tried to find cities that had different interpretations of the future. And so we, I think we say in the movie, New York was the future to so many immigrant families. It was like the, the, the new horizon. Right. And what does that mean now? And all the kids we interviewed in New York city were children of immigrants. But really and truly, I've grown up and have some really close, deep friends in both those places, Detroit and New Orleans. Those cities are completely new to me. I'm a visitor to both, like hopefully not a tourist, hopefully a visitor. And they're very deep cities, obviously. And I like that it made this like X, right? Or this cross, you know, top, bottom, left, right. And they have this such deep, amazing history. And I kind of like starting in Detroit and ending in New Orleans. Um, I can't totally explain why. But New Orleans is such a deep spiritual city, like on so many levels. Obviously, it has like such, you're like just soaked in history when you're there. But just the way people live and just there's a spirituality and an idea of ancestors that's in the air there, like nowhere else. And kind of this invitation to like non the non-rational world, <laughs> I feel like is really alive there. So it felt like, and it's a, I have a friend from New Orleans who calls it, you know, it's a city that blends the tragic and the magic, you know. And I, and I, I find that all like what an amazing bed to put the end of your movie where you're hopefully having the most emotional transformations where you're required to be the most vulnerable. I feel like New Orleans is an amazing setting for that. It, just to, just off the thing, what you were saying about working with Robbie was part of this in each place. I mean, obviously you have a very specific setting for these scenes. Was there always this idea of going out and getting some of those? textured establishing shots that you could I imagine maybe play with in the editing room was that something that was always oh, yeah. part of the formula yeah that was a big part of the plan like especially a place like New Orleans or Detroit because we were visitors like finding people um so Lori Tipton was my great friend from New Orleans who really helped show me everything and Jackie Smell helped show me everything so I, I really relied on on people who lived there for a long time and have a real connection to the place that point us like where where to shoot where to be where to, what to show i kind of want to dig into the interviews a little bit and and the npr framing that kind of allows us to 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 have a different relationship to sound than we do in most movies um and i'm curious if you were thinking about that in terms of sort of capturing what chris was talking about sort of finding a way for the audience to experience something that we're used to in stories in a different way i don't know if i thought of it quite like that i did definitely think okay like i have this um very intimate core story that, that is kind of based on me and my kid that's coming from this like really known place in a very intimate small place right and a lot of the movie is like saying okay small <laughs> right like here's small and and let's love small and like look how big small can be right but it's like very intimate tiny tiny and I had this great need or want or desire to not just have it be about my kid. Like my kid in real life has increased my sensitivity and, and interest and curiosity about kids. You know, like all the kids that go to school with their friends, it's the world of childness, the world of childhood. So I wanted the film to be like that. So I wanted all these strangers, all these other people to kind of like take control or have their own voice. And Obviously, those interviews aren't scripted at all. Those are really just their their opinions and their soul, hopefully. And that way, I was trying to kind of break apart my film or like have this other film in my film that kind of wasn't 
serving it at all times. You know what I mean? Like, and we worked hard in the edit to make sure that the documentary part wasn't just like in service of my fictional characters. Cause that would have been like really weirdly exploitive. And my film maybe is weirdly exploitive or like maybe that is going on, but we did struggle hard to try not to do that and to have it have enough of its own life while relating just enough. So it's not annoying or feeling like a distraction or you just don't know why you're watching these two things. But I thought about a lot about a film like um, Something Different by Vera Chitilova, you know, the, the Czech f- filmmaker. And it's just two completely different stories interwoven together with no explanation. And obviously I didn't go that far. But I think, I think I was using those interviews for a lot of different reasons. Also, just the nature of interviewing someone and the way they reveal themselves with words has such a different texture, right? And that's going to disrupt my fictional scenes and kind of help them, enhance them, and kind of like the the reality that you feel in an interview washes over into my fictional scenes a little bit, you know, just the vibe, or it just kind of confuses you, I think, in a positive way. Did you did you film them kind of in the same set of production in that sense that yeah. the documentary doesn't inform the narrative until you get into the edit? Like, it's all part of the same loop of production rather than doing the doc stuff, like... You know, yeah, weeks yeah. earlier or something like that. Because Woody is is ten, so there's a lot of like le- child labor laws, right? So Woody can only yeah. do a certain <laughs> amount of hours a day. So we have this like chunk on every day at the beginning or the end of Woody's hours that we would go interview kids, and and it, it was a really neat. It it affected the whole filmmaking process because you're like you're you're a guest in some stranger's house, some child's house, right? And you're, and you're really, you're making them vulnerable, like whether you like it or not, right? And you're doing everything you can to make them feel empowered and, and happy and a positive experience. But you've gone through the experience of making someone else vulnerable, right? Which I feel like is a really tenderizing, vulnerable making thing to yourself if you're an, at all a live film crew. So to do that like every day or every other day and have Joaquin do that. And Molly, Molly obviously is, Molly, Molly Webster is from that world. She works at Radiolab, but it it changed our whole way of being, I think, or whatever. It kept reminding us that we're guests and visitors in all these lands and with these characters, even if they are fictional and with all these feelings. And mm-hmm. um, it, it took you out of sort of like a capitalistic acquisitional mode and made you into like sort of like a being with mode a little bit more. It it does feel like to kind of build off what Sarah, I think, was, was getting at with in terms of the sound, though, also is oh, right. there, there is this thing where... And of course, the obvious scenes are are when he's the kids walking around with the you know, the yeah, you know, yeah. but I mean, but there is that idea of hearing the you know bringing in that sense of sound and calling attention to the fact that it's being recorded. And often, I think you're even using mics that would that kind of make it feel like a little bit more radio and that sense of uh, of being called attention to the sound and and then suddenly feeling like you're in New York for the first time with this kid or you're mm-hmm. you're you're walking down Venice Beach and it feels different like that. that that does feel like a way of using sound beyond just the narrative part of that's what he does mm-hmm. to to kind of capture a certain sensory aspect, you know? That's really interesting. Okay, so uh, two things to say. One, I feel like I could have done a lot more with the sound in this movie. <laughs> um, and, and I tried, and it always kind of like flattened out. Like the story kind of stops when you just focus on sound. And there was there's some other scenes that I shot where like he's in bed, they're in bed in New York City and it's after that sugar high night. And I spent that, there used to be like a whole sequence of this, like hearing things or seeing like the trash truck go by, the birds singing, the, 
um, some Chinese music going on in the background, right? Like things from that neighborhood. And it kind of just like lost momentum. But I wish I was just a better filmmaker or braver or whatever, or could have pulled that off more because I like the question you're asking. And it's something that was really interesting to me a lot in the writing is sound is also like a deep kind of existential situation. <laughs> like sound is presence. If you're listening, if you're trying to hear me right now, if you're trying to hear a car outside your house, it makes you like very present and aware. And it also sound is inherently, uh, it, it can't, sound you cannot separate from time. Sound, sound is an ephemeral thing. You can't take a still shot of sound. You know what I mean? So like, and time passing and ephemerality like is built into sound. And so there's something really deep and beautiful about sound as just like, I don't know, like a, <laughs> like the philosophy of sound or the emotional possibilities of sound that I feel like I could have explored even more. I don't know. It, it like ties very nicely the way it is into, because that's, that's also the experience of childhood is like, it's, mm. it's ephemeral and it's, it's visceral at the same time. Um, and, you know, requires from adults so much attention and the spending of your time. And that's something that Joaquin's character reckons with in the movie. And so it's interesting to me that you sort of thought of like kind of the documentary parts and, and sort of the more podcasty bits separately from the narrative, because I think they feed each other. Yeah. The idea was that they feed each other, but like in a, um, to let the documentary part have its own sovereignty a little bit, right? Or have it not just be in the service. If I had these real kids, real lives, and real struggles explain or give transformation to my very privileged man and kid, it would have been really messed up, I feel like. It would have been like a strangely story exploitation. <laughs> and, so, uh, we, and so we all talked a lot about that. Uh, Jen Vecarella, my editor, me, my producers, that, that caused us a lot of problems in a great way problems in the good sense of the word um and there and there's still discussions like and there's still arguments there's still quotes in the movie that some people feel like that you can't do that you shouldn't have done that you know like in my pool in my in my filmmaking family and hap you know like and but it, understanding that it's all very subjective but like when um there's this amazing kid evan in new york city who's talking about his father who's in who's in prison and how he's very happy to take the responsibility of being his little sister's brother and kind of father figure. And that's an honor to him to have that responsibility thrown on him. So weirdly, yes, that, that just through serendipity has, has a echo in my story, right? My fictional story. For a long time, we did not use that quote because we felt it was just like too, it was kind of exploitive of Evan's real experience to like employ it in my fiction. And then we, but then just through trial and error and just guessing, we, I kind of came up with the final thing. Like, I do want it in the movie. It ties in just enough and I feel like it's okay, but it's tricky turf for sure. I, I'm wondering if you talk a little bit about approach to composition in that sense that um, it often feels like you're able to live in, in one you know, as we're kind of having this sensory experience and we're being with these people, it feels like minimalist to a certain degree in these beautiful compositions. But I'm wondering how that, I'm sure that's how you see it, but I'm wondering, you know, working with Robbie, is it seeing how things are going and rehearsing and kind of finding a frame that fits in that? Or is, are you someone that's really thinking in terms of knowing how I want to see this scene? And I, I'm just very curious because it, 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 it's beautifully shot, but uh, as I rewatched it last night, it it's remarkable how few shots sometimes and how much we live in 
live in a certain composition. I think part of this whole, like I, I kept thinking like iconic. I, can't, I would think of like Casablanca, you know? Um, and that does feed a little bit into this like classic um, fable kind of film language, like something that isn't just um, too hip in a funny way. Or to be honest, all my filmmaking is a little like that. Like I really love Gordon <laughs> Willis, right? And, and I think a lot of my use of editing and framing and the, the distance I like and all that is and the kind of simplicity and obser slightly observational quality, like a warm observational quality, to me is very Gordon Willis-y, you know? And I talked to, talk to Robbie a lot about Gordon Willis. And a lot of those locations are places that are, are my friends' houses. <laughs> and, uh, so, or, and just me walking around New York, figuring out which neighborhood I want to be in and kind of figuring out a holistic thing. So that's like days of me just going around with the camera and just like kind of like creating, taking a lot of shots, editing them down and making these PDFs that kind of have like the world, you know? Or when I go into a place, same thing, like what are the angles I like, what doors I want to shoot through, all that kind of stuff. So some of the language is already set up just from my director scouts, you know what I mean? There's like, um, oh, this view is great, you know what I mean? And then we figure out, part of the thing of the natural light is having a great AD to make sure you're at the right room at the right time, while also shooting in order. Because I like to shoot in order, but then I, because of the natural light, I need to be in this room at four, I need to be in that room at three, you know what I mean? And I don't know quite how Rachel figured it all out, but she does. <laughs> um, and that's Rachel Jensen, our, our great AD. And, and, and factor, in, factor in a child's schedule with that too. It's, it's, <laughs> no, it's a miracle. Really, <laughs> yeah, and all the union stuff and all that. That's not, I don't understand the multiple <laughs> abacuses that are going on there. Um, then one of our first days of shooting, we did one of those orphan scenes. That's like a back and forth. And we fell into this thing of just clean singles, you know, like no over the shoulder, just in this person pretty much centered and kind of like a wide close. So it's like, you know, chest uh, above the head. And, and me and Robbie were both like, God, I love that. It's just so simple. It's so, I don't know what the word is. It's like just so un, un overworked or something. And, and then with Robbie's lighting and Robbie's sense of control over lighting, it just did feel quite iconic and beautiful. So that kind of became our thing, you know? of these kind of clean, mostly clean singles, sometimes a two, liking to edit, you know, definitely using edits, and it's, it's definitely an edited film, but not editing too much. Um, and kind of like Robbie Mueller in Alice in the Cities too, right? Like that's a movie that's like both very verite feeling and very classic feeling to me in, in its use of composition and editing. So once you know you're doing clean singles, you can block the scene with the actors in any which way you want, and you just know that it's very flexible, right? You just know you can always do that. And then a lot of the exteriors, or whenever we could, we would try to just think of it in one, in one shot. Like anything that's not a dialogue scene, it's pretty much in one shot, or one angle. Yeah, switching gears slightly, uh, would love to hear you talk about the choice to shoot in black and white, and, and also to, to bring on uh, Robbie Ryan, who has a very particular uh, sort of intimate style of photography. So for me, the I've always wanted to do black and white movies. Um, I feel like I'm I'm a total black and white nerd, and I so many of my favorite movies are black and white. So that's like definitely has my heart and my attention, and and you know some of the hero films in my consciousness are black and white. So of course I think like that sometimes. Um, in this case, it really made sense because. 
to me, the heart of the story is this almost kind of fable image of a child and a man walking through different landscapes and the man trying to help the child. And that to me is like a very kind of classic, ancient, Jungian, archetypal image. And I wanted to get, I thought that was cool for me. It was like interesting and weird and subversive and kind of punk to think of like a fable inside my sort of naturalistic filmmaking. And I think I just knew or sensed or had the vibe from watching so many black and white movies that black and white offers you this really strange change of the game and that it kind of breaks the normal verisimilitude contracts, the unconscious verisimilitude contract that natural light and color offer the viewer are broken and changed with black and white because black and white, Annette Benning told me this great story that Mike Nichols sold Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf being in black and white by saying, it's not reality. Black and white is not reality. It's about reality. And I do feel like that's like very, very, very true. It's an abstraction and it, and it, and it sort of ruptures our typical unconscious assumptions about verisimilitude and imagery. And I think it makes it much more like artistic. And that sounds like a dumb word or like a bad word, right? Um, but it's like everything becomes an, uh, an image, everything becomes like a drawing, everything becomes meaningful and expressive to me uh, in a way that feels like very story, like an old story or like, a, um, I don't know. So, so to me there was like this real frisson, this real like electric buzz of having my very naturalistic world, my very unart directed world, my very natural light world in black and white. It, 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 like, it was like opposites that go great together. In terms of that, I mean, he's great. So the answer could just be that he's great. But I mean, it does it, working with Robbie for the first, I mean, we're, uh, a feature working with Robbie for the first time and working in this context, uh, reaching for him in, in, in context of what you're trying to do with this film. I mean, he did a beautiful job and I, I'm wondering how he fits into this and, and what he brings to the table. Yeah. So Robbie, I think I came to Robbie like a lot of people do through like Andrew Arnold and Ken Loach and all that and that kind of naturalism. And I definitely need that. And a lot of DPs don't even want to go there, right? So that means, okay, great. We're in the same basic world. You like to work light. You like to work fast. And you're about what's happening in front of the camera. And you don't need a technocrane and 20Ks and all that. And so I knew that we were simpatico on that from a distance. But then seeing the favorite, I was like, whoa, um, the framing um, not on the really wide angle lens at 60 millimeter, but that other framing is like so classic and so, I don't, to me it just displayed like a hell of a lot of taste <laughs> or a hell of a lot of like depth of talent or just like not everyone can frame a, it's a close up like that. And I'm sorry, it's just like, it's a, it's like a, I don't know, it's like a chef, right? Cooking. It's hard to describe why it's so great. Um, and so that's what really made me feel like, oh, for this film that wants to traffic between documentary and some sort of classic archetypal thing, like I, the favorite made me really feel like, oh, this is the right guy. And then the thing that really surprised me getting on set is, um, yes, Robbie's so adept at making natural light work for like multiple scenes and like most of your work. He's also amazingly good at, my film has a ton of nighttime interiors, which means you're lighting the whole thing. And I shot all those day for night. So we would black out all the windows and Robbie's creating the whole universe. And he does it in such a way that does not feel created, that does not feel like some overdone, overlit, you know, statement by a DP. But every image really looks quite beautiful. If you, all the close-ups in my movie, all the 
all the faces really have a very beautiful iconic situation going on that was done with such a light touch and I think that's like I don't I didn't know that about Robbie and I feel like I watched a majority of his films and it's quite something he does it very fast and and it's like I do feel like it's like kind of master chef level stuff. <laughs> it's like, how did you make that sauce? I'm not quite sure how he did it. He just whipped over there and just did it real fast. I, I still don't believe him that uh, the the favorite was no lights. It still seems impossible to me that I do believe him. It just seems it's hard to watch and see. It. <laughs> you know, there's no reason to lie. Um, you, you have a better chance of a nomination if you do hang up a light every once in a while. So it's not. It's not. It's not, it's not, it's not. Um, I'm curious, Mike. In this kind of, I, I think about all of your films. But it feels as if maybe this has been an extension of the fact that, you know, in telling these stories that you tell, and they're very personal, and they they draw us in, and all these things that we've been talking about, how we're drawn in, there is an element here, though, as a storyteller, of how much you don't have to rely on some kind of forced conflict, you know? And that is, to be honest, like, I mean, that's something where, you know, that works, you know, hundreds of years of storytelling of, and there is some conflict here, but that idea of, you know, how one can sustain an audience over a feature length film sometimes does require that more forced narrative drive of, of, you know, one can imagine even in the scenarios that you've created, mm-hmm. maybe upping some kind of conflict or obstacle here. And I'm just wondering, cause it feels as if, if that's something that just is your, mode of storytelling but it also feels like that element of how to sustain a narrative drive like this one that one that you know people like sarah and i had this experience of being so captivated by this film for for the length of a feature film Mm. without something like that Hmm. well i think part of it i have just like a disability with like plot like i just (laughs) i can't do it I, 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 like if I was like put under some sort of test, like as a kid is often for an assessment, I would just fail, like literally. Um, I'm getting a little better at it or ways to make it more like me and that feel real. But like causality and people changing a lot and people like coming across their blind spot or their weakness and that creating situation where they have to do something they never did before. All, the, all that kind of McKee stuff, which I respect, um, I, I am inept at. And, and kind of, I guess because I'm disinterested and I don't really trust and it's not, it doesn't really like model my life, you know? And I am telling stories which have a very particular cultural privilege space to them, which I don't feel totally comfortable about, but it's just totally the truth, right? So I'm not like a refugee or I'm not like dealing with like intense external conflicts or something like that, right? Um, and so my talents of creating something that's more ambient and less conflict-driven are kind of suited to my world. And maybe that's why I have those talents, right? Because that's <laughs> my reality. That's how I've lived my whole life. And I still feel like there's a lot of stuff to uncover there or those like, truths. Or it doesn't mean like you're stuck in a world of just platitudes or something. But so, I, I, so that's one answer. I feel like a distrust of intense external conflict kind of reflects my own life my own privilege and also there's other things that are very interesting right and then as a writer as a craft person wherever i am filmmaker person like i love frank ocean like frank ocean's record blonde 
is amazingly captivating to me, or like sati is amazingly captivating to me because it's not telling you like, come in and I'm gonna take you on this ride and you know, I'm gonna manipulate your feelings. And I trust it more for that and I invest more because of that, you know? Or again, like Alice in the Cities, what a gentle film that's not like bossing you around at all, you know? And I, and I like really like that. I like having some space for myself inside of it. So, so I think I try to do that too in the film. Like I kind of open-endedness. But I do want to keep you interested. Like I'm not, yeah, I'm not yeah. actually Godard, right? I'm not, I, <laughs> yeah. I'm not that iconoclastic, right? I'm an American born in the, in the 60s who, I don't know, like I, I wish the arc light was still there because I like thinking about the arc light all the time. It's like, okay, this is in the arc light with a bunch of strangers in a dark room and, and I don't want to bore them. <laughs> so I'm going to do it differently. I'm going to, mm-hmm. um, but I am thinking of them. I am thinking of strangers in a dark room and how to like engage with them. And it's like my biggest thing in, f- in life is making these movies. This is my big pitch to the universe so yes i want to i don't know i don't want to i don't want to disappoint you all <laughs> and, and, and but more importantly than that i i it's my one attempt to like be with people on a large scale mm-hmm. does it take long i mean when we talk about script and things like that it, often it's like when people are talking about how long it takes to write something about that it is mm. more often with the plotting and the narrative is there an equivalent for you though of you're talking about this is your life and you do make one of these every five six years mm. is there an element of just as much of trying that right combination i i think back even just to earlier in this conversation in the way well we'll shift to new Orleans and capture that texture mm. for the end and the emotional. And is, is it, is it, is it finding these combinations and these elements and, and from a scripting standpoint that does, even though you're not thinking about it in terms of plot, finding that right mixture does take just as long. Well, so I mean, but there is plot, right? I'm not, I'm not, yeah, I'm yeah, not yeah, like yeah, a yeah. pitch a pong. Right. And I love yeah. a movie like that, or even like Yorgos Lanthimos, like some of his earlier movies. It's like, how did you do that? Like, how did you keep me interested for that long? I do use plot. This movie has probably more plot than any of my movies. More straight, linear, time kind of causality than anything I've done. But, and so I am thinking about that a lot. I do have the McKee book, like, right here. Like, I do, like, I, uh, like, he, he, his analysis of our expectations is, like, highly accurate, I, I find. And, and so I do want to play with people's expectations, not just, like, kind of fart on them and walk away. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm trying to dance with the expectations. For me, like if I was making a film, to me the thing that takes long is, um, and some of my scripts take like three years because I get completely lost because I'm usually starting from memory. I'm starting from things I've experienced or seen or can kind of report on and turn into a scene or, and I don't know how they're gonna go in order. I, don't, I have no idea and I just pile up. There's just like notebooks full of like blah, 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 blah. And then, and then I go back and sort of try to find themes or something that feels like an order or something that could, can be a watchable plot-like experience, you know? Um, and that's what takes so long. I feel like if I was dealing just with plot or more conventional stories, you'd, you would kind of know more where you're going. And it might think requires a lot of trial and error. I'll write something, show it to a friend, see what gravitates. Okay, and that gravitated to this friend and this friend and that friend. Okay, it's a keeper. That weird thing I just mind is a keeper, even though I don't, I can't explain why it's interesting that there's an orphan theme in this movie, but people are gravitating towards it, so it's a keeper. But so my whole process is very 
has to be kind of trial and error because it's coming from such a personal, non-formulaic place. I'm curious what what you said about creating something that isn't bossing you around, but has like this really compelling ambiance to it that sort of keeps us looking for the art and looking for the meaning like that struck me. I'm, I'm very curious because uh, that's something I think the national does very well with their music. So I'm curious what it was like to work with the Desners on this and, and what lessons you took away from working with them previously that fed into this. That's interesting. Um, well, uh, okay. So I like the national, I like the national a lot. And sometimes I listen to the national when I'm writing just one song over and over again, because I think Matt Berninger is doing the thing I like a lot, or he's taking things as observed and finding a way to turn it into like a poetry story that has just enough grippiness, or he's he's betting that the reality of it, the 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 that it is something he's seen, felt, observed, and it's often very a small detail, but the reality of it will have a grippiness to it that you can't use in a normal um, McKee way, right? You can't use in a normal sort of Machiavellian way, but it has a grippiness if you're kind of available to it and kind of play with it that way. So, so they've been like a real model to me and like an example of how that can work and be captivating. And then there, a lot of their song structures are sort of unusual or aren't, aren't like hook-based at all. Working with them, I did this long film with them and got very involved with them and actually ended up producing, helping produce one of their records and like just being like way, way up there in their swamp <laughs> of, of, uh, <laughs> of how they make their stuff. And, and loving it and just having such great camaraderie and friendship with them. Like, it's just awesome experience. They taught me, beyond working on my movie, they are such amazing collaborators. They just, like, they invited me in. They gave me all their stems. They said, go play. It's, like, very trusting, very, like, blind trust. And kind of, I think musicians are a little bit more like that because you're constantly, like, just faced with the unknown and filling the space with your improvisation, you know? So like they really have to dance with the unknown all the time or just what's out of your control all the time. And so like a lot of my relationship with Robbie, like all, a lot of that landscape photography stuff, I tell him what I wanted. I told him like Gordon Willis, we talked about all these different stuff, but then he just went off on his own and did it because like I knew he'd have more fun than me sitting there kind of <laughs> bossing him around. And he's, you know, he's an Irish guy, so you can't like, as an American, you can't boss an Irish person around too much. They're going to rebel and leave you. So I knew it would give Robbie some, like, and Robbie would call it his fishing expeditions, you know? And, and, it, and I don't think I would have done that without the national guys. And then finding the actual sound of this film, the musical sound, was such a hard, weird, long process. And I led them in so many of the wrong directions by being kind of, like, overdetermined or, like, having a great idea, right? And having a great idea, like, kind of from top down so often doesn't work, I think, in my kind of film space. And I'm often the last one to actually understand that or learn it, right? And the Desners are both very good at just, like, experiential, iterative, layered explorations where you find something that you cannot have described in a prescriptive way. That's beautiful, Mike. I, did you make Robbie when he goes out? Does he, does he have to listen to a particular song while he's out recording? No, no, like, this never, is not. <laughs> Robbie's a funk guy it's, 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 yeah. with his Irish accent. He called funk, and yeah, Robbie's Robbie's doing his own thing. Robbie's a you know a very special creature that you want to just let loose. <laughs> yeah, he uh, actually when uh, I can't. It's been a couple of years since I went to Camera Homage, but he always 
would DJ a couple hour set at one o'clock in the morning where he would just he would take over. <laughs> it wasn't the national, but uh, <laughs> was, uh, anyways, Mike, thank you so much for this film. Thank you for your time. Yeah. Uh, we, we love this movie. So thank you. Oh, that's so nice. Thank you guys. Today's podcast and the following message comes from MGM Studios, a United Artists releasing Licorice Pizza, written and directed by Paul Thomas Anderson. It was named Best Film of 2021 by the National Porter Review and nominated for eight Critics' Choice Awards, including Best Picture. It's now playing everywhere, and it's for your consideration in all categories, including Best Picture of the Year. 